Our scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 2. I'll be reading the first 24 verses and then from 36 to 47. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, like a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them dispersed tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other native tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and they marveled, saying to one another, Look, are these not those who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Persia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own languages the wonderful works of God. So they were amazed and perplexed and they were saying to each other, whatever could this mean? And others, mocking, said, they're drunk. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice, and he said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass that in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Young men shall see visions, old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show you wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that Jesus should be held by it. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children to those who are far off, as many as our Lord God will call. And with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then reverence and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and their goods, and they divided them up among all, 
as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, we celebrate Pentecost. Last week, we celebrated the Ascension, which takes place 40 days after the resurrection of Christ. Pentecost is 50 days. Pentecost is Greek Pentecoste. It means 50, 50th. The only reason we have it uh, in Greek is because the New Testament was written in Greek. But this is a Jewish festival. It's a Jewish celebration. They refer to it as the Shavuot. And And Shavuot in English just means weeks. It was the Feast of Weeks. And this is this tremendous celebration which took place 50 days after Passover. They counted out seven sevens and they got to the 50th day after Passover. Passover, Passover, of course, is when they celebrate their deliverance from slavery and death in Egypt. And then they count off seven sevens. And then in the Shavuot, they celebrate that God shows up on the mountain and he gives them his word and they become his people and they become, you know, the family of God. And when God showed up on that mountain, you'll recall in Exodus, he showed up with fire. And so Pentecost, for those of us who celebrate Jesus Christ as the Messiah, we have been grafted into the family of God. And 50 days after the, resur- 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, 50 days after the Easter celebration, 50 days we celebrate that God is continuing the work that he has begun in his people. We celebrate on Pentecost that the gospel went global. Begins with the nation of Israel to all nations. The promises of God have been accomplished. He didn't forget them. He didn't forget his people. He didn't just crumple up his plan and cosmically throw it over his shoulder and say, well, you know, I'm doing it. God is doing a new thing. No, he he did do a new thing, but he also fulfilled a very old thing. And we don't want to forget that because it's inseparably connected in a glorious way. This morning, we're going to look at two things. Firstly, the historical and global significance of Pentecost. And then secondly, the communal and missional relevance. First, historical global significance, then communal and missional relevance. Some of you are paying attention to, hey, that's four things. I know, I'm tricky that way. But anyhow, here we go. Firstly, the historical and global significance. This is uh, the fulfillment of explicit prophetic hopes for reunification of Israel. New covenant, new work by the Spirit. All of these prophetic hopes are realized, but they're beyond expectation. They're all realized. The prophets wanted this to occur, and it is happening, but it's not in the way that anybody expected. A small, messianic, Jewish sect became an international, multi-ethnic movement that became the most ethnically diverse religious movement in all of human history. And will always be. This is what God has done. Irreversibly written himself into human history. And it is just tremendous. Now, how did this happen? Well, here's how it happened. In uh, the Hebrew scriptures, in the Torah, there are three pilgrimage feasts where all the Jews would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The first one is Passover. The second one takes place in the fall, which is the Sukkot. And the third one is the Feast of Weeks, the Shavuot, the Pentecost. This is the third 
pilgrimage. And so it is because of this pilgrimage that all of these Jews come from all of the regions that we just read. And they're converging on Jerusalem. And the population of Jerusalem is exploding. The city is bonkers. And it looks uh, quite multi-ethnic because of what we just read. You can see all the regions these folks are coming from. But do not forget that they're all Jews. They have all converted to Judaism. They believe in the God of uh, the Hebrews who saved them out of slavery in Egypt. They converted to Judaism. They are observing the Torah. If they're males, they got circumcised. They have have been grafted into the family of God in in an ethnic way because they've become uh, Jewish, even though they're from different cultures. And that's why they're all in Jerusalem. They've made the pilgrimage for this feast. And this is the impetus, this is the ground zero for God taking the gospel to go absolutely global. It says that the Holy Spirit comes in like a mighty rushing wind. In the Greek, the, the, the actual word here is baeos, which means violent. And some of your English translations will say a violent wind. It wants us to imagine a storm, really. Violent wind and fire, or lightning. Here's a question. Is God just doing something out of absolutely nowhere? Is this just a cosmic parlor trick? Or do we actually have a category for this in the Old Testament scriptures? And the answer is we do. We go back to how God has always moved through history. We go back to what they're celebrating in the first place. The giving of the word of God on Mount Sinai. And how does God show up? In wind and fire. As we begin to trace this back, it begins with the burning bush. The burning bush is a, is, is a small bush, the only bush in, in the Hebrew uh, culture referred to as the Senek bush. The Senek, uh, because it was on Mount Sinai. And so God shows up first in the flames of the burning bush. And he says to Moses, bring my people back here. So Moses, del- Moses goes and there's a great deliverance from Egypt. And he does bring them does bring God's people to Sinai. And then God shows up in fire again a second time, only it's much more dramatic. The people of God look at the top of the mountain. It looks like a massive storm. Violent winds, lightning, fire. They're freaking out. All throughout the Old Testament, as the fire of God keeps showing up in the tabernacle, it's a, every time there is the fire, there is a temple. This is the making of a temple. God makes the top of Mount Sinai a temple. As his presence, there's this convergence of the presence of God in the physical realm. And then in the tabernacle, in the... Uh, uh, in the wilderness, the presence of God shows up again. The fire uh, hovering above the temple over the Holy of Holies. Every time God's presence shows up like fire in the Old Testament, this is temple space. But also in the Old Testament, it was always very intimidating. But here it's not intimidating. Suddenly, now for the first time in human history, it's empowering, comforting. The same fire. So we do have categories. For God is doing something new, but he's also fulfilling something that he's always done. The marking out of temple space, the place where heaven and earth meet. And that's why Luke, the author, who was a Greek convert, who is now reflecting back on the eyewitnesses who were in that room, 120 of them, and the eyewitnesses say that it seemed like, as this violent wind comes in, that there's these... And Luke takes very much, very much care in saying there's individual, sort of like a flame flickering. This is what people saw, this spiritual phenomenon. Individual, and it's amazing because it's marking out temple space, only now it's not 
what God has always done, his presence showing up in one place and at one time for one purpose, but now his presence is showing up and he's marking up temple space that we, his people, are his temple. We now are the mobile temples. Both the Apostle Paul and Peter had the language for this. They referred to us in, in their texts as the temples of God. You're the temple of God. Therefore, the way you live matters. What you do with your body matters. Uh, the way that you use your resources matters. What you ingest in your eyes and your ears matters. The ideologies that form your life and your rhythms matter. The ideologies that dominate your house. The conversations that dominate the dinner table. They all matter because we are now the temples. And it means something in regards to the freedom and the joy with which we are intended to live our lives. And so, we get this image. And the reason why uh, I bring that up is because this text that Luke wrote, this account, comes later. Decades later, after the apostles had already established the language of you are the temples of God. So now Luke is recording this historical phenomenon. He's recording the event. He's going to the eyewitnesses. And he's inviting all of the readers to see, yes, we are the temples of God. We're the meeting space where the presence of God comes and meets the physical. When you consider all of the regions here, these four corners, you've got the Parthians, they're up north. You've got the Medes and the Elamites, that's modern-day Iran, Persia, Mesopotamia, Babylon, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia, that's all modern-day Turkey, uh, Phrygia, oh, that's modern-day Turkey as well, Egypt, North Africa, Libya, Cyrene, uh, all North Africa. Um, you've got the little island off of Crete, off of Italy, the Arabs way off to the west. You've got Rome, which is way west, the Mediterranean. The point is, there's a picture being painted here that from all four corners of, uh, from every direction, God is drawing his people together to create a ground zero. The other reason this is important is because all throughout the prophetic scriptures, the prophetic hope was that the scattered tribes would be reunited. They'd been praying for that for centuries. It's in all of the language of the prophets. Ezekiel, the household of God, the tribes being reunited. This is what they want. This is what they're crying out for. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't play out the way they expected it. They were thinking it was the reestablishing of one nation politically. This is actually the salvation of all nations globally. But it's majestic fulfillment of what everybody was expecting. The prophets were expecting, but it happens in a way that they didn't, uh, couldn't fathom. They were scattered. It's been a few hundred years since the exile, and now here they're all converging. They were scattered, but now they're gathered, and God uses this glorious opportunity to make the gospel go global. Peter gets up, and he gives this beautiful speech, and it's, Peter is cutting and pasting from all of the prophetic language of the prophets to get us to see that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, we just read it, of course, it's a Greek translation, so it said Lord and Christ, but they would have understood it as Lord and Messiah, right? That's what Christ means. Peter is carefully weaving Jesus into all of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures to show that this is something that God has been orchestrating for millennia. He has been working through human history by his great grace, his scandalous love to draw his people back together and this language of in verse 36 of the whole house of israel this is really important particularly in the prophet ezekiel's view of the restoration of all the tribes um, uh, from from exile and so he says that he's going to uh, 
we're going to be his witnesses, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, that he's um, bringing his temple together. And then there's a massive conflict that happens. And the massive conflict that happens is, I'm going to borrow a phrase from uh, Dr. Tim Mackey, Hebrew scholar who puts together a lot of the uh, material for the Bible Project, which some of you are familiar with. He calls this the tale of two temples, or the battle of two temples, because now the Holy Spirit has descended, and, this, and he has made his people his temple. And now these spirit-filled believers are going out. But there is still a physical temple. And it's the temple that was built by Herod. It's the temple that Rome put there to kind of appease the Jewish people. But it's, they're all Roman puppets. And that's why the Jewish zealots you know, hated the temple and wanted to burn the temple. Because this is all Roman pageantry. It's not truly the worship of God in the way that he intended in, in the Old Testament. So there's this temple, this old temple, and now there's God who's indwelled his new temples. And now there's a conflict. And the conflict is brewing in the book of Acts. And it culminates not long after this in the martyrdom of Stephen. Because it's the representation of the old temple having a real problem with the now spirit-dwelt new temple. The message that Jesus is the Christ. And so they martyr Stephen, and it's actually after the martyrdom of Stephen that Jerusalem becomes ground zero for now the apostles leave Jerusalem and the gospel goes global outside of the Jewish nation. It goes to Samaria and to the ends of of the earth and and goes to all these other uh, nations. And the the global expansion of the gospel, this has been God's heartbeat from the beginning. It's what he's wanted since Abraham. Since Genesis, God has been saying, through you all the families will be blessed. And of course, the people of God were miserable failures generation after generation. So God comes to do what we could not do, and that is to bring salvation and to reunite us with him. So that's the relevance of all of this historically and scripturally and um, ultimately globally. Let's move on to the communal and missional relevance of all of this. The presence of God like fire, it illuminates and it consumes and it refines. We see that happening in the early church and we desire that to happen in this church. The indwelling presence of the Spirit looked like generosity in community and contentment with simplicity and boldness to be witnesses. That's the first thing we see. That's the, those are the first fruits that the, the Spirit begins to produce in the people of God. Sometimes we think of Pentecost as the birth of the church, or it's talked about that way, but that's a limited view, because as I've just demonstrated, that throughout all of uh, Hebrew history, God's been calling out his people from darkness into life and into light, and we see that vividly beginning in Abraham. So here at Pentecost, it's not the beginning of the gathering of God's people, but the dwelling by the indwelling power of the Spirit. And uh, in verse 12, the the crowds ask a pretty good question. The question they ask is, what does this mean? So let's ask the same question. What does it mean? What is the relevance of all of this? And the first thing I think we need to note is that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, it wasn't a private experience. It was a city-wide movement. And it wasn't a, just a, a charismatic church meeting. It was a public cross-cultural declaration of the gospel to diverse people from completely different cultures. And it was done in a language that they all understood. 
uh, in the Hebrew, uh, well, in the Greek, in the New Testament, but also in the Hebrew, the tongue that's in your mouth, the word for tongue, is the same word for language. In English, we, would, we don't use it anymore. We don't, we don't say mother tongue anymore. We say languages. But in, in this context, the physical tongue in your mouth, it is your language. And so as the Holy Spirit comes and they're speaking in these other languages, these tongues, and everybody's hearing it, the gospel begins to go global. Let's consider who's doing this. Let's consider the relevance of this. They're in the upper room, and the Bible records that there was around 120 who were waiting, as Jesus commanded, waiting in the upper room to, for the power of the Spirit. What could, be, what could possibly be so important for Jesus to say, don't go anywhere until the power comes? But Jesus wants them to wait until they're indwelt by his very presence. And in that upper room, there's, of course, the 12 apostles. Uh, the 11 apostles and the 12 that replaced Judas is there. And then there's the rest of the folks. Men and women are there. And it's not that the Holy Spirit comes and falls on the 12 apostles because they're the most educated, they're the most theologically trained, they're the ones that walked with Jesus, they're the ones that saw the resurrected uh, Christ and were taught by him, so therefore they get the Holy Spirit and the rest get some sort of secondary Christian experience. They are all empowered to be witnesses. All of them. The men and the women. That's why Peter says this is what the prophet Joel spoke about. There's both men and women in the street proclaiming the gospel. They're all a part of this. And we want to consider the implications of all of that. It means that everyone was called into this new movement. And that's true of you and I. That we can't sit back and say, well, uh, I, I have a picture in my head of the kind of person who lives with a real sense of mission and care and love and boldness in the city. And I'm not them, therefore... They can do the work of gospel ministry in the city, but not me, because I'm not that kind of the person. And what the upper room teaches us is that everybody there, from the most, qualif- most educated to the least, from the most qualified to the least, were all given the same Holy Spirit, and they went out and they declared this ministry. But it, it, not just a ministry of preaching. It was, it, was a, it was an entire life that began to flourish and look like a new humanity. A new sense of generosity and community and simplicity. It was a life. So we want to think about what does gospel ministry look like for us as the modern church in Kitchener-Waterloo. It's not that at the end of the service I commission you all to go out into the city as preachers per se. Though you all are. Preacher simply meaning that one who proclaims something that you have been passionately changed by. But it's not just a function of preaching. It's not that those of you who are great orators or who can do good or good with apologetics or having debates and discussions. It's not that. It's that we all go out into our city with a sense of hope-filled generosity, simplicity, contentment. We're now living into a congruence by having God's word become alive in us that, that gives us a, a tremendous boldness with which to approach all of our vocation. The way in which we approach life on campus. The, the way that we engage in conversations. Our perspective, our ideology. I mean, it's all sort of flowing out of the belief that our very lives are in the hands of God, that we're cared for, provided for. That we just don't share the sorrows and the worries and the anxieties of our news feeds and of our culture. We're still in the same problems as 
everybody else, but we don't relate to it in the same way because we can look at the birds and look at the flowers and we know that we will be cared for. Even if our life catches on fire and everything burns to the ground, we are loved and cared for. Even if that happens, it's not just in a spiritual sense you're loved and cared for, and you are. As a part of a community of believers, we are committed to each other in a deeply, profoundly generous way. If anybody in this room who is a member of this church falls on hard times, we are committed to caring for you through it. We don't just sit back and go, oh gosh, good luck with your hopes and dreams. I hope you don't lose your apartment because you can't pay your rent. We pay the rent. Oh man, we hope you don't lose your house because you lost your job and it's going to be you're a couple of months behind your mortgage payment. We pay the mortgage payment. We do. It's just we relate to everything differently. Because we're like, I am a part of the family of God. My very life is in God's hands. Someone gets sick. It's not good luck with your hopes and dreams. It's not, oh, I'm really uncomfortable around hospitals. Yeah, so I am uncomfortable in hospitals. So welcome to the club. But we go. Like, it's not about me and my comfort levels. It's about care for you. Everything fundamentally changed. There was a generosity and a simplicity and a contentment with the way that they left their life. It's like the whole church could exhale in a culture and at a time when nobody could exhale. This changed and transformed absolutely everything. A boldness to be these witnesses. A witness with, yes, the message of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. And also a witness with their lives. You know, fire illuminates and consumes and refines. The fire of God, the Holy Spirit, he illuminates through the wisdom of his word. the, the, The wise guidance of our lives. That's why we love his word and we meditate on it. And we form rhythms in our, in our houses of worship and of meditation. And as we do that, he, the fire of God consumes things. Consumes our disordered loves. Consumes our wayward ideas. Consumes things that ought not to dominate our hearts and our minds. And refines us as more and more he forges his character into our hearts and our lives. And I'm going to close with this. It says that these communities of tremendous generosity were caring for each other. This is, this is the blueprint for us, church, how we gladly want to care for each other in this way. It says in verse 47 that they had favor with all people. That means that the church didn't just become closed. It didn't mean that we just care about those who are a part of this community, though we do. It meant that we genuinely care about our neighbors and our co-workers. We just live local lives and the people outside of our community matters. The staff here at the downtown center. I mean, it matters. It said they had favor with all the people. How do you have favor in a city that does not share your ethics? The answer is not you just bow your knee to their ethics and then you get favor. And the answer is not you hold your nose and you yell at them every chance you get. Because that's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is who Jesus is. He is is the one and by his indwelling spirit that transforms our very ethics. So how is it that we have favor? It's through genuine love and care of those who do not share our ethics. It's not bending our knee ideologically. 
But it's with wisdom and care and love and patience and generosity, a way of relating that is winsome. So that we can give a bold defense for the hope that we have in him. When God wanted to save his people before the exodus, he set a bush on fire. And today in our city, as he wants to save people by his grace in a global exodus, he sets his church on fire. So may we go into this city, confidence and humility. May we give a defense for the hope we have in Christ by the power of his spirit, so that according to his word, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen.